before we start our conversation, uh, I'll just remind attendees, the question for today is, did the American founders misunderstand equality? We asked participants to read uh, a number of documents as a starting point for that conversation. A list of 54 uh, American documents. We have the Declaration of Independence, uh, Thomas Jefferson's letter to Henry Lee of 1825, Jefferson's letter to Roger Waitman of 1826, Abraham Lincoln's fragment on the Constitution and Union, uh, circa January 1851, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech of 1963. To supplement these readings, we recommended other documents, a couple of other documents. If you're not familiar with it, these come from our extensive collection of original, original documents available at teachingamericanhistory.org. And those are two letters from Thomas Jefferson, one to Henry Bouguer of 1809 and another to John Adams of 1813. So, uh, so to, to start our conversation off, what I thought I would do is just take a few broad thoughts. As both of you know, um, the first self-evident truth pronounced in the Declaration of Independence is that all men are created equal. Yet it's commonly claimed uh, today and throughout the 20th century that the founders didn't fully understand that claim or perhaps they didn't really believe in the truth of that claim. And the evidence for that tends to be their toleration and support of slavery, their exclusion of women from political life, their notions of natural aristocracy, and their defense of private property, especially as that results in, in, uh, in inequality uh, among Americans in terms of property. So just to kick our conversation off, I thought uh, maybe I would like uh, both of you to address uh, what extent do you think those claims are accurate or inaccurate? Uh, and in general, how do we start to think about this, this question? I'll turn it over to either of you two. Well, Peter, uh, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> Thinking I'm going to interrupt you anyway, might as well do it from get go. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, this, the, the, the thing that I think I try to do whenever I think about this, which is more often than I care to admit, given that I still don't understand much, is how radical this notion is. Whatever it means, <laughs> it is something um, uh, uh, unique in, 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 in human events, as it were, to assert such a thing, whatever it means, this equality. It's an assertion somehow um, that uh, we all have said in, in various past conversations uh, it, it was not necessary to make. You could have just sort of bro broken the political bands that have united you with, with these colonies and, and be done with it and win a war and, and they're, they're independent. But something more was at work here, uh, a kind of demand, um, uh, even a respect for the opinions of mankind, which, by the way, seems to me to be, you know, a weird thing to say in the late 18th century when mankind didn't have an opinion and no one held it in regard. Um, that that you're going to have to give reasons for this this um, this illusion of the bands that have held you together, and that reason fundamentally has to do with this equality, whatever it means. This something, some um, assertion, uh, a truth, even having a truth, uh, having to do with with uh, human beings and what they are. 
and what their essence has to do with government. In other words, with who should rule, for what purpose, and how the ruler should rule. Um, so whatever equality means, it's a massive fact. Um, and it has to do somehow with uh, uh, human nature being uh, more in line with our understanding of the world than heretofore ever explained before. It's a radical, radical notion, whatever equality means. Good. Well, if we can explain all that in the next hour, right. we, will, we will have done some magic. Yeah. But, now, but Peter, so are you suggesting that in a sort of first understanding, sort of first American understanding of equality was simply used to to, to uh, announce and justify the equality of essentially British subjects here in America, the equality of British here in America with those back on the island? Is that is that true? Because I've read, of course, we know that some people have made the argument that that's the extent to which that claim of equality ever was meant to apply. Um, or is that, are you saying that's a starting point? It's partly that. It means it means many things. Certainly, it means in the you know uh, um, the separate and equal stations station is part of it. Um, um, but no, I mean there's something much more uh, uh, radical and deep and profound going on here, having to do with this term, which is not not um, it's not it's not it's not archaeology that they assert this on. You know, it's not where did we come from um, as a people or something like that. Uh, we're talking about w where we, what we are, and therefore where we are heading politically. Where ought we to be heading? And where we should be heading, the kind of political structure that we ought to have and the purpose that it ought to have has to do with this assertion of human equality, that there's something about human beings that is naturally true that cannot be uh, denied. And it's, I mean, furthermore, you know, to, to make it even more complex, it's a self-evident truth. So we're not going to prove it <laughs> because it need not be proven. There's something about the proposition, the self-evident truth within itself that that, uh, that sensible human beings, meaning all human beings, can actually see and be affected thereby. But isn't there a problem with that? I mean, doesn't that claim that it's self-evident somehow complicate the thing? Because, I mean, we know, first of all, what do we think self-evident means? Um, that's, a, that's a big question in itself. Was it really self-evident to Americans at the time? Well, uh, yeah, I, I, let me let me talk about that if I may. I I, I think it was uh, to Americans. You asked that, um, Chris, and it is remarkable when you you look at all the, uh, the amazing volume of documents that articulate what Jefferson later called the American mind. It's remarkable to me when you look at the documents sort of between the 1760s and the 1780s and that sort of 25-year period in there, it is astounding how many Americans spoke at length from all kinds of different angles on these huge philosophical and political questions. So there's a, there's a huge record of their thought. 
And I think in that record you do find a um, an American mind that is very much um, of one mind, you could say, on, on this question. So if you look at the you know the Virginia documents or the Massachusetts documents, um, New Jersey documents of you know their new state constitutions, their bill of rights, you see all kinds of different ways in which Americans are saying the same thing. It really does become uh, distinctive of America to be saying, look, all men are born free and equal, or we're all born equal and independent. We are all by nature equal or free, or we are created, you know, all these different formulations. And I do think that there is that Americans, again, on the whole, uh, as a people, were in uh, unanimity on that, on that question. It did seem evident to them. But they say, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And I think, as Peter was saying, they're, they're quite aware that they're, they're talking to a world of crowned monarchs and hereditary aristocrats whose whole world is premised on something different. They're, they're quite aware of that. So, so the Declaration says that we're making the claims of the self-evident truth out of a due regard to the opinions of mankind. Uh, why would they do that then, you know, in light of what you're just saying, Chris, when the rest of the world doesn't, doesn't believe in these that, opinions? I've that phrase, and I think Peter pointed to this too, that wonderful and sort of surprising phrase, you know, decent respect to the opinions of mankind. If you are a divine right monarch or a hereditary aristocrat, you don't have any regard for the opinions of mankind. And there wouldn't be such a thing that had any significance to you. And so that very respect that the the revolutionary Americans are showing to mankind is itself a revolutionary thought that is saying to all those clowned monarchs and all those hereditary aristocrats in Europe and all those who are uh, living under them that, in fact, human beings if you understand them for what they really are, as we do here in America, human beings are beings that can think for themselves, that can reason for themselves, and uh, and as you stop oppressing them and stopping them from, you could say, um, uh, rising to their equality, they will all show you that they deserve this respect that you are denying to them. Something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's very clear. I, I mean, you know, people used to think, <laughs> and even Americans up until a certain point as British subjects thought, or these would-be Americans, thought that there were some human beings um, that were booted and spurred and some with saddles on their back, born thus, uh, to be ridden by others uh, without their consent like a horse. A horse doesn't really consent to being ridden. Uh, he agrees to it as a result of coercion, training, force. And the poor son of a bitch does something unnatural as a result. You know, a horse is a defensive animal, and yet he's willing to charge into battle with a man on its back because he's more afraid of the man than he is of the aggressors coming towards him. Um, that's a remarkable thing. It's an unnatural act. Uh, the Americans are as whatever equality means again. <laughs> it's, just, uh, it's, it's not that. 
some men are not born with uh, uh, booted and spurred and other with saddles on their back. There's not, no, no natural discrimination between human beings that allows one man to, to rule another man the way a man rules his horse. That leads yes. to problems. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, sorry, thank you, Peter, but I'm listening to your reasoning, and I see two things. On the one hand, emphasizing um, that this idea of equality, which everyone recognizes to be the central or most distinctive and well-known American idea, that this idea, which claims to be self-evident, needs a lot of thinking, and, and all of us still puzzle about it politically and even just philosophically, um, on the one hand. On the other hand, it's also, it, has, it is clear in many ways, and I think we can, we'll see many of them just in this talk. One of them you're just pointing out that, um, and this is, you were quoting really from that letter to Roger Weitzman or Wakeman, is that, that's meetings for today, isn't it? Yes. And, you know, so everybody can look at that. It's, you know, it's a great letter and it's worth rereading because right there in that one place, uh, almost on his deathbed, 50 years after the Declaration, Jefferson, who was invited, you know, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Declaration, said, sorry, I can't be there. I'm going to be dying on that day. And he, he writes in this, in this letter, uh, this reflection on one thing that that idea meant. And that is to say, when we say that all men are created equal, one thing we mean is that the mass of mankind has not been born with saddles on their backs, nor a favored few booted and spurred ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. I mean, there's a wonderfully uh, concise expression of one thing that that idea of equality certainly means. And it means that no human being is by grace of God born to be ruling over other human beings. We are not equal by nature or by the divine order in that way. And so one, I think, clear Thing. And this is one way, Chris, in which I think, again, the, the American Revolution, aside from the loyalists, if you want to get into that uh, question, um, they were wholly agreed that the idea of the divine right of kings was not true, and to, the assertion of human equality was a denial of the idea of the divine right of kings and of hereditary aristocracy. I see. Well, that's, that's wonderful. I mean, Jefferson does, Chris, Jefferson does in his letter to Henry Lee distinguish between all American Whigs, right? So he does say there are, there are not every American living here is, is in line with these things, but for, there's something about that American turn of mind, a really American turn of mind, that he characterizes as being somewhat Whiggish, if you will. Um, I mean, we really uh, did, we really did have, I'm sorry, we really did have a revolution. And after that revolution, I, I do think that American politics arose from this revolutionary principle. And you could say, and as Jefferson would have said, all Americans are Whigs after the revolution. That's right. But, but the, can I add just a, a footnote to that? Because in my own, you know, super naive way, I have to keep reminding myself of this. You said, Chris said that, uh, Flannery said that, it, you know, still puzzling over the meaning of equality. And, 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 and that's absolutely true. I mean, we're not trying to define something. 
This isn't this isn't an exercise. This what we're doing now, and we, what we always do as Americans, this puzzle over the meaning of equality, is not an exercise in definition. It's not the, it's not a mathematical exercise. It's a it's an exercise in thinking about something really important. And I just remind you that you know that the beginning of this country. I mean, it, it, it's it's a word, <laughs> you know, or it's two words. Right, equality and liberty, and we're disputing that. Dispute is a too strong word. We're always puzzling over it. We're having conversations over it, and we have to keep doing that till the end, because that's what defines us. The ability to have a conversation on the meaning of equality and liberty is what defines us as a people, and we, of course, assert under these universal principles that all other human beings in theory, could do the same thing and may join us in that. That's an extraordinary thing that one has to remember in this shitty, nasty world when people are savaging one another as they always have. And we're not. That's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, because uh, I like the way you put that, Peter, that we're not engaged in, in, in trying to find a definition for equality. It seems to me that... that became a pursuit largely after the Civil War, maybe more so in the 20th century, when we try to define equality. And it seems that what that's led us toward is, uh, is focusing on that word uh, as having, well, focusing on equality more as a result somehow, right? Because when you try to define it, then you then you have to look at all the ways, first of all, in which everybody's unequal in a very real sense. So you have, you have some people who have less, you know, rights of suffrage or some group. Right. Uh, you have less, you know, you start noticing the inequalities of property. When you start to define that term in such precise ways, you, you actually, it leads down the road, first of all, of emphasizing all the ways which were unequal. And then, the real, um, that's right. The real reason for doing that, excuse the interruption, uh, in this century, in this last century, is, is because what, what, what those who tried to redefine it, as it were, um, uh, sort of kicked nature out the back window and the limitation that that imposes and started talking about more conventional or civic equality and got confused as to the which is more important and which depends on the other. So you end up with this weird sort of equality of outcome, sort of base low economic stuff, quasi-Marxist sort of even, one could say. But that, I think, is the founders clearly didn't mean that at all. They meant something really much more profound. Uh, they meant something having to do with natural rights and, of course, something that is natural right as well. So, so uh, that's the radicalism and that's the, that's the puzzle and that's the determination of the American mind to keep asserting that as, as, as the beginning of all political conversation, as an assumption of it, that human beings are thus rather than that. They are actually capable of thinking, as Chris said it. They're actually capable of thinking what is good for them, what their rights are, of perceiving what their rights are and understanding them, and 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 they are able to uh, come to some sort of determination how to pursue their own happiness. That's a massive fact. I mean, it's an ineradicable fact in human history that once you assert that and you begin to see the the how human beings are raised by that understanding, self-raised. They raise themselves to this very high estimable level where they can think through these things. 
despite what the monarchs and the aristocrats and the despots and the tyrants have always asserted against this. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, let me let me try to add something to that or, or walk away from it. Um, yeah, we don't want to. Uh, our effort here in this conversation, and you could say as a people, politically or in our classrooms, we don't want to define uh, this concept, as it were, this word. Uh, but but we do care about what it means. And um, and our whole question in this conversation uh, is premised on uh, that. That is somehow um, we Americans in our classrooms, as citizens, as teachers, and students, uh, right now in the 21st century, we look back at our revolution and our whole history, and uh, we have certain views of it. They're often uncertain, especially for 12 years old or 15 years old, and we just learn about our country. Uh, we look back at the revolution and we look back at this most famous document and we learn a few things about it. We know some things about it and it raises questions in our mind. So we see this famous assertion that all men are created equal and we see the facts, which Chris pointed out in his introductory remarks, that in this very country, at that very time in 1776 and years after, these people who very famously um, proclaimed this idea that all men are equal. They held slaves, and uh, in different states, women didn't have rights of inheritance or rights to vote or different other uh, social, political, economic rights. Um, people of different uh, wealth uh, held different rights in society about whether they could vote or hold office. And you could go further, depending on whether you were a Christian or a certain kind of Christian, you might not be able to hold office and so on in different votes. And so we look back and we see that in America in 1776 and afterwards, there were many actual political, legal, economic, social inequalities. The most profound and significant of which for everyone is slavery. And, and therefore, we, uh, to the extent that we get confused by these things, we get confused by that, and we say they couldn't have meant to, to include black human beings, for example, when they said that all men are created equal. So there are many decent, patriotic, conservative, liberal, um, you know, young or old Americans right now who look back and who will say, well, when they said all men are created equal, they must have meant all white men. And it matters that we think that, that somebody thinks that. Because when you think that, then you do have a conception of what this revolution meant and, and what it didn't mean. Um, and those confusions, which we're working out in this conversation and conversations across the country, they have profound political implications. And so um, now in 1776, I would say, part of this conversation, in 1776 or 86 or 96, maybe even 1806, you wouldn't have found any significant American, any well-known public speaking political American who didn't believe that all men are created equal meant all human beings are created equal. It meant all human beings, black and white, man and woman. 
And so at that time, you know, this is part of the, the argument or the conversation. I would say at that time, and I think Lincoln would say, looking back in those years, you couldn't find a man in America who, who didn't understand that all men are created equal men often. So something happened in coming decades that made that necessary to talk about. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the, those are some of the challenges that face later generations of Americans, teachers and students who are trying to learn about their country. Uh, they have to, they have to work through these things. So, just that. That's right. Oh, well, Chris, Chris, those are, I mean, that's a huge point that you're making and that, um, it wasn't one of the, the readings that we recommended for today, but the way you framed it reminds me of the way Roger uh, Taney or Tawney made his argument with Dred Scott case where he, he's, you know, arguing in, uh, in 1857 that at the time of the American founding, they believed in just the opposite that, that as you just described, right? I mean, Tawney argues that you would have been hard pressed to find anybody who didn't think of, of an African as anything other than an ordinary word article of property. And um, so, so the thing that happened, there's, it just goes further to show that there's something big has happened in the meantime that has led from, you know, this belief, I think, at the time of the founding that all men are, in, in fact, created equal, and that includes uh, men of all races, to 60 years later, almost 70 years later, we have somebody claiming that nobody at the time of the American founding inequality, that equality ex extended to anybody beyond essentially white males with property. It's amazing how quickly that, uh, that view sprouted up in the 1810s uh, and 20s and 30s. Um, that's right. I mean, I, I think that that speaks to this minor point here from my point of view is that this is the nature of an experiment. And the experiment is from the beginning, everyone's talked about it as an experiment, this founding of this political society, um, this articulation of a new political purpose is an actual experiment. I mean, you know, when the Hungarians founded their polity, or the Muscovites, or the Thuringians, or the, 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 the Manchu, uh, they don't talk about an experiment. They're just an isness, they're a whatness that happens in a kind of organic growth way from their point of view you know, stemming from families and tribes and this and that and so forth, the Americans are, and it's an experiment. And whether we can establish, you know, good government from reflection and choice rather than base it on accident and force, first paragraph of Federalist 1, I think that's a huge point, and, it's, and therefore it's an ever-going experiment that almost collapsed, you know, second generation, third generation into it. Uh, uh, that, that, that is a, a huge point, it seems to me. Yeah, let's talk a bit about just the specifics of that. Um, you know, I think that uh, the members of the seminar here are teachers, most of them, although they could be just citizens. But, um, you know, how does, you know, if you have one hour or to spend on trying to understand equality or these things, how, how do you do it? And I think you would need to think about these things that Chris has brought up and that you can see in some of these documents for our readings today. Sometime in the 1820s and 30s and 40s, um, some people in America, particularly defenders of slavery, to put it that way in America, began publicly for the first time in, in the country's history, began to assert on the floor of Congress, 
and in published um, works of, of, of intellectual standing, um, they began to publicly deny that all men are created equal. Um, so you find uh, someone on the on the floor of, uh, of Congress saying, to say that all men are created equal is self-evidence lie. I think that was credit of Indiana. Right. And you have John C. Calhoun, the most well-known uh, statesman, philosopher, to put it that way, in the South, proclaiming that to say that all men are created equal is, is the most dangerous untruth. Now, Lincoln, looking back in the 1850s and after, looking at these developments, sees those changes in opinion as being the greatest threat to the well-being of this country that you could imagine, greater than any foreign enemy, uh, any economic crisis, or anything else. Those changes in opinion were a threat to uh, this experiment, as Peter is calling it. And one of those uh, threats, which he regarded in a way as more insidious even than this denial that it's true that all men created equal, was this Supreme Court opinion by the Chief Justice of the United States that said, no, it's just they didn't really mean to say that all men created equal. So Lincoln in the 1850s is living in an America in which the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is issuing an opinion saying that what these Americans, Jefferson and others, meant in 1776 was not to say that all men are created equal, but just that all British subjects are equal. And Lincoln is watching that happen in the political world that he's living in, and he writes a brilliant response to that, a wonderful, uh, fairly brief response to that that we can all read. But he has to do that. He has to make a public argument that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States doesn't know what he's talking about. And he, he says, he expresses astonishment and says he doesn't think that anybody could find one single human being who had ever said or thought such a thing until the Chief Justice of the United States said it. And so, but this is, Peter talks about an experiment, opinions matter. And, and, and Lincoln found himself confronted with at least these two different kinds of opinions. One, saying they said all things created equal and it's not true. That's John C. Calhoun, and that's the secessionist to Alexander Stevens in his cornerstone speech. I don't know, was that, uh, I think, a sign for today, the cornerstone speech? No, that's, that's, that's a later document, but okay. you'll bring anything you like. But, but so there, there's this one clear secessionist view. They said all men are created equal. They meant all human beings. They were wrong. And we're going to therefore secede and establish a regime based on the truth that all men are not created equal. That's one thing Lincoln had to face. And they had to face the opinion of the Chief Justice of the United States and Stephen Douglas following that, saying, no, actually, they didn't even mean to say all human beings are created equal. They just meant all white men are created and, and so Lincoln, talk about, um, you know, confusion about what this idea means. Lincoln is conducting his political career in a country that is publicly divided on this great 
question. And that's one reason why we, we have to think about it and figure out for ourselves, well, what did the thing? Yeah. Right. Well, that's, again, that's the purpose of the conversation. It is, it is a tough it is a tough idea to to really wrap your head around, despite the claim that it's somehow self-evidently true. It is it is it is a, a, a difficult idea, especially I think today for a lot of people from our own modern perspective. Um, and that that modern perspective is somehow you know we're here living in the what century are we in? 21st century? I sometimes forget. Uh, we're in the 21st century, and you know time presents a kind of fog sometimes. Uh, uh, but 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 we also have a tendency today, I think, uh, to think of ourselves somehow as more historically uh, enlightened than others, and we, we want to somehow look back at the time of the founding or these moments in between that we're raising, and apply our own standards or our own understanding definitions to go with what Peter was saying earlier, definitions of what equality should mean on them in those days. But but if we do that, I think we're in some ways just as guilty as what Connie was trying to do. Uh, in his in his own interpretation of of, of the history of the American founding, uh, Peter, you you mentioned that you know what Americans are doing is engaging in an experiment, and I love that way of describing it because an experiment implies that we're actually trying to do something new, which I think has been the main theme of what you're both raising so far. There is something new in this this way of thinking about what equality means that has not been tried um, before in throughout the world, uh, or if it has even been brought up, it's been brought up, it's been rejected as somehow impossible or dangerous existing regimes. But but that seems to me what, uh, you know, what Tawny or Taney, however you want to say it, uh, is missing. He makes the claim in the Red Scott case, in his opinion, that um, that uh, that they didn't really believe in the equality of, of human beings because for centuries, he says, the accepted opinion of all civilized mankind, especially with Europe, had been that uh, that Africans could be bought and traded as, as ordinary articles of property. And it seems that, that that way of thinking is an exact rejection of the claim that you both started with, where Jefferson says that this claim is somehow a kind of starting point. It's a new way of thinking about things. Right? All eyes are opening to the light of science. As Peter says, uh, all men are not, you know, some men are not born with saddles on their backs, uh, and others with spurs ready to ride them legitimately by the grace of God. It is a new way of thinking about things, which means, uh, at least suggests to me, that it's going to take time for our society, if you will, to somehow catch up with that idea, especially when you've been, you know, you've been living with them. Americans have had slavery for 100 years. Um, you know, going back to the way Europe was. So, you know, you both brought it up. If you contrast the amount of equality in its applied sense at the time of the American founding, um, the number of women who did vote back, Chris, you brought this up, right? There were women who were voting uh, in certain states uh, prior to 1800. Um, uh, there were free, uh, free African Americans who were voting in, in, in several states prior to 1800. Um, the property restrictions on who could vote for white males were being lifted gradually over the decade after the Declaration of Independence came out. Those seem to me to be, from our modern perspective, insufficient. But if you put it in historical context, those are huge terms. Those are huge uh, changes that are taking place in this experiment, especially when you compare it to 
uh, the way things were in Europe uh, at the time. Uh, and I think it's been unappreciated. Please go ahead. Yeah, no, let me try to, uh, if I can, recall how Lincoln talked about that. Uh, again, Tony's uh, view, again, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, his view of these matters is a view that is still shared by many, many um, very educated, smart people. I think of two, Henry Louis Gates, Jr., Gary Will, and other contemporary historians and political scientists, not to mention teachers and just professors, who agree with Tawney. And they agree with him for a sensible reason. It's a wrong reason, but it's uh, powerful. And that is, Tawney looks back at them and says, they could not have meant to, to include all black men when they said all men are created equal, because you, at that time they were holding millions of them as slaves. And so it's impossible to imagine that they meant all human beings since they were holding some human beings as slaves is the greatest, in the greatest condition of inequality. And so Lincoln looks at that and, and says, and because you have to do this, this is what he said, you have to read and do this ourselves. And people can disagree. Lincoln looks at that argument and he says, that amounts to just nothing. And you have to start somewhere with it. He says, he says they, in claiming that all human beings are created equal, they did not mean to be saying that they were all enjoying that full equality in this place and this time um, across the board. What they meant to uh, say was that all human beings by nature possess these rights, and here in this country, they will enjoy the exercise of those rights as soon as we can figure out how to make that work. Now, I'm not doing justice to his wonderful reasoning, but that was his beginning to try to reason uh, against this sensible but mistaken way of thinking about that, which is still, as I said, I mentioned two contemporary, well-known, influential intellectuals, Henry Louis Gates and Gary Wills, who both are very, who both denounce slavery. They both do think that all human beings are created equal. But like Tawney, they think the founders, Jefferson, couldn't have meant that since he himself was a slaveholder. And Lincoln has to reason his way over that. And so do we. Yeah. That, 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 what, yeah, that's very nice. Put, frankly, uh, I'm not sure I can add to it, to the argument's benefit, except to say that, that the, 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 the shocking thing is that in the midst of slavery, in the midst of divine right and aristocracy and saddles and spurs and so forth, that human beings, even against their interests, <laughs> would rise to say the truth of equality and thereby make their actions, say holding slaves more specifically, to be a great wrong. That is a remarkable human achievement, it seems to me. It's a remarkable human achievement that has to be understood and as understood, so praised. 
because it's 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 really it's it's almost uh, one wants to be uh, you know one wants to bring divine things into it when you sense that because really this is you know people are showing through their mind that they're capable of understanding something very deep that's a great good for them and for all other men including of course the wrongly enslaved that's a remarkable thing and that to deny that whether it's tawny that denies it or his own way steve douglas denies it because he confuses a couple of things is is really too bad but understandable because of the imperfection of human beings uh they just can't see that a, a human being can 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 hold a proposition in his mind that arises only from his mind and the laws of nature shall we say rather than interest human beings are capable of understanding something other than their own interest in other words they're not tyrannic by nature they are capable of rising to the level of equality capable of self government that is a remarkable achievement and you know uh, that's american exceptionalism by the way yeah, by the way i'm so sorry I didn't... go ahead I was just going to say, by the way, if that's not true, if people are not capable, human beings are not capable of, 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 of contemplating a, a truth or a principle and putting that ahead of, of, of self-interest, then there's no there's no point in making such claims of self-interest. Absolutely, there's no point in in, in asserting uh, in any way that that the human mind is free, or that, for example, speaking uh, you know, among our friends as teachers, all of us, that is, uh, that education is possible. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was. I, I want to say something to lighten this load because this is, of course, hard. Uh, I was in. in uh, I've used this story before. I apologize if you've heard it, but it's significant in this context. I was in Estonia uh, three months after communism fell. Uh, you know, whatever the hell that was, in March of '90 or something. And 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 I bump into some half dozen Hungarians, Hungarians in Estonia, in Tallinn, Estonia, walking in front of me conversed in Hungarian, and I, of course, was able to understand them, um, listen to them for a while. They were archaeologists. And I, I was embarrassed overhearing them, so I introduced myself and asked them what, in Hungarian, of course, what they were doing in Estonia, for God's sakes, three months after communism fell. And they said, well, now that we're free, meaning from communism in Hungary, we wanted to come to Estonia, Finland, and then to name some village in the Ural Mountains, because we want to, now we have the opportunity to find out who we are as a people. You see what I mean? In other words, literally, <laughs> where they came from was the most important thing to them. That was an extraordinary conversation that lasted 20 minutes or something. And, you know, in my typical un-Hungarian American way, I beat up on them because they're doing it exactly wrong. You see, so when we're looking at, am I, I hope I'm being clear, when we are looking at American history, let me make this assertion in the context of this wonderfully enlightening conversation. When we're looking at American history, we're not doing archaeology, god damn it. We're not doing archaeology. We're not doing history in the ordinary understanding of that as understanding the past. We are actually inquiring about ourselves and what we are as a people and the things for which we stand. It's actually an inquiry. 
we're actually having a conversation. It's a permanent thing. Our history is actually in the important sense, not in the Mickey Mouse way that, that some people have used it, is living. It's not dead. The American Revolution is not dead. It's not in the past having have happened and then other things follow. It's a continuous thing. And the way Flannery pointed out the conversations that, that started to be built in the 30s and the 40s and then ended up really in this extreme version of the Taney decision and how Lincoln had to reply to that, that's, that's the, the opinion with regard to these things, the, the, which is connected to consent and so forth is a continual thing that we're doing. That is American history. It's not archaeology. And it's an extraordinary thing. And that, of course, is unique in itself. That's great. And I want to, uh, on that theme, that's, that's right. And I think that's, this conversation here is not, is not archaeology. And in my classroom, uh, when we talk about these things, and I hope in the classrooms of the teachers in, in the MAG program, uh, you you're really having an American conversation. You are talking about uh, these things because they have to do with your being an American and a human being right now. And they have to do, they do have to do with your relation to your country and your country's history. We do have a history, we have a particular country. It's a very interesting, uh, um, a lot of complicated details. But one of the ingredients of it is, that Peter keeps bringing us back to, I think, is that um, our revolution bequeaths to us an experiment, and it is up to every generation to lose it. You know, and, and so in order to, uh, in a way, in order to be Americans, we have to be human beings, and we have to discover how to do that. And they knew that they couldn't do that for us. And the, so one of the wonderful mysteries of the of the revolution is, is that is there in a way, bequeathing this revolution to subsequent generations who are going to have to be self-governing human beings and citizens. Um, and so when we're talking about this idea, it matters because you could say one way it matters is that you can, in a way, when you take someone like a, a Henry Louis Gates or a, a, a Thurgood Marshall to take another Supreme Court justice in the 20th century or Gary Wills, and they look at the American history and the idea of equality in the revolution, and they say they couldn't have meant and they didn't mean all men are created equal, they mean to denounce them for that. They mean to be critical of them for that and want to express great contempt for them or denunciation or moral disapprobation. And they mean to say that we need to import some different idea to correct this flaw that is essential in America's beginnings. And that is a very important um, problem. I may just stop there. So that, that's, um, that's really clear and th uh, very helpful. Thanks, Chris. I mean, the other thing that I think both of you are bringing up, it actually addresses a, a point that was raised by one of our participants, um, which I'll just little paraphrase here, and that is that there's another unique aspect about about the American founding and this claim of equality. At the same time, we claim in the first paragraph to be separating ourselves as, as one people that are somehow distinct politically from all other people, most immediately from the British, right? We are now one people, assuming our separate and equal station among the powers of the earth. But, but in, in, in following up right away in the next paragraph with that claim that all men are created equal, 
there's a universe sort of a universalization of things that's taking place. So there's there's a there's an a, it's a strange thing. It's a tough, tough thing to touch on. At the same time, we are declaring ourselves to be one people. We are pointing out in what ways we we have something in common, some fundamental thing in common with all peoples everywhere, all human beings everywhere. And uh, I think you know Peter's example, especially of of, of the of the Hungarians uh, that you ran into. It's the opposite of that. They can't. They can't see any. There's no universal thing that connects them to people outside of Hungarian blood or tradition or land or soil or anything. And um, this universalization of of what it means to be a human being by Americans, as we know, has had profound effects on not just on the kinds of changes that we make here at home as part of this experiment that we've been talking about, but the way we deal with foreign people and other nations. I think has been greatly affected by that that notion of equality. Uh, this the person who raised the question mentioned you know like all of them in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and these other places. But this 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 claim has had consequences far beyond our own borders. I was just reading something, Chris. Uh, just reading something this morning from 2006. Uh, something written by a conservative guy. Uh, who was who became? He was first a supporter of the war in Iraq, and then he became a critic of the war in Iraq. And he became a critic because he became to believe that the American war, from the president on down, that we had we had made a mistake, and we had we had thought that all these people over there could just start governing themselves if we could only remove the tyranny that was over them right then, and that that was a mistake, and. Um, and it was a mistake that came from a misunderstanding of uh, of this of, of equality or for the truth. And so, I think Americans have had that argument, and we continue to have that argument. That is, what do our American principles, which, as you say, are universal and hold that all human beings everywhere have equal rights to life and liberty and so on? How does that um, uh, affect our foreign policy? Or say a place like Iraq. Does that mean that we have some, if they're being tyrannized, that we have some obligation or a right to go in there, say remove the tyranny, and and should we then expect that they will then start governing themselves like um, like good Americans as we do? And um, we we've had a, a really uh, lively and um, instructive national conversation about that and um, by and large Americans have seen that self-government doesn't seem likely at any you know next year in Iraq or Afghanistan or maybe the next decade and it's important to try to think through well why is that yeah uh, what is what does that tell us if anything about our principle that all men are created equal and as we're saying here have the capacity to govern themselves well, maybe, maybe Chris, what it one thing it implies is that um, in making the claim that all men are created equal, there are also limits to how you can actually make all men equal in every way. It turns out, perhaps uh, this is I know one view that that um, that that although human beings somehow are all we believe they are all capable of self-government, it turns out that um, there's a great deal of education and enlightening, if you will, that must go into to making certain things self-evident to people uh, before they should actually engage in those sorts of things. 
Yeah, and so it's very, if you're a Sunni or a Shiite over there in Iraq right now, it would be irrational of you to consent to be ruled, if you're a Shiite, to be ruled by the Sunnis. Or if you're a Sunni, it would be irrational of you to consent to be ruled by the opposite sect. Why? Because you know, and they will tell you to your face, that they do not regard you as human beings. And okay, so say that again, I missed that. You know what? Say that you again. You know, and they will tell you to your face that they do not regard you as human beings. That's exactly right. And so, exactly. so it turns out that in our conversation in America, we need to, and we do, remarkably, I know, when we disagree with one another about things, we nonetheless look at one another, however much we disagree about important questions, as human beings whose rights we recognize and we will respect. If you win this election, we will subject ourselves to your changes in policies, your new, new views, because we believe that whatever changes you will make will not tread upon the rights that you recognize us to have. Now, when that starts ending in this country, then we're going to start finding, you know, Shiite and Sunni disagreements among ourselves, and that will be a bad moment in our experiment. But we don't have that right now. But, but it is interesting to reflect how difficult it is to achieve that and how many times in our country, in the great crises, secession, and the other great crises in the country, one way of understanding them is that a crisis in America, the real crisis is when we, we begin not, when some significant factions in our country cease to view other significant factions as human beings. Then we've got a problem. Yeah. That's right. And when they, that's when they, when they view those factions or groupings, whether it's what we call loosely ethnic uh, or religious, as somehow a firm foundation of human beingness. In other words, I mean, religion. You know, what we are after here is watch to paraphrase Washington: civil and religious liberty. Without religious liberty, which is attached to this principle of equality, you can't have free government. You can't have government by consent for limited purposes to secure natural rights. So we, you know, Woodrow Wilson, of course, famously screwed all that up. Again, we don't have what moments left, but, you know, when he's talking about national self-determination of peoples, right? I mean, that's the Shiite Sunni answer to that. That's the, that's the Western progressive Hegelian formulation for that because you're now removing natural rights from discrete individuated human beings that are by nature into groupings which are matters of habit and tradition, including religion. So it's a massive problem that we're still living in that. We don't know if you notice, bless his heart, our president, you know, he doesn't exactly know, and this includes his predecessor too, by the way, nobody is able to speak perfect with perfect clarity on this stuff. And, uh, you know, that's because they never had a Mac class or two. I was just going to say, you know, you could you have, and we do have, you know, Mag class, you could say, that, that treats the history of American foreign policy. And you can really do a history of American foreign policy by trying to think through how all presidents and our governments have um, uh, applied, you could say, the principles of American equality in our foreign policy, whether they did that, you know, in a, in a wise and prudent way, or whether they misunderstood that in some way, like Woodrow Wilson or, or others, George Bush, for that matter. And, and by similarly, similarly, the others, in other words, 
the Europeans say and Louis Kossuth, the Hungarian in 1848, you know, just as one example, and there are, of course, thousands, are coming, under, coming to us for help because, look, we are trying to do what you have done. We understand equality correctly. Therefore, you must, you are morally obligated to help us in our revolution against despotism. Fascinating. I want to, just because this is such an important thing, and I know it's not our immediate theme, but it's, it's close. Since we brought up this question of American foreign policy and how, how does the American principle of equality translate itself into American foreign policy? And it's a very important and interesting debate. And I think that there's one very wonderful and true beginning to an answer to that, which uh, um, John Quincy Adams bequeathed to us when he says that America is the friend of liberty everywhere, but the guarantor only of our own. And I think, to my mind, that is a good beginning point to a conversation about how the principle of American equality is related to American foreign policy. It is true that American politics does have and should have a disposition of friendliness, generosity, support even, for liberty in the world. But the critical thing is that we are responsible only for to guarantee the liberty of our own country. To the extent that we succeed in doing that and in uh, having self-government flourish here, that is the best thing we can do to promote liberty in the in the world. I would say, John Quincy Adams. That that in itself is a great philanthropic act. That's right. It is. It is. And that's that's the, the just to set up the background of that speech, Chris. You know, the, the theme of that is, you know, John Quincy Adams asked the question, "What has America done for the world?" It's not that we've gone around affecting revolutions by force, but we have held to the we've held up to the world and says the example of a free and self-governing people who share certain fundamental principles and beliefs. The chief of which is this claim that we're talking about today that there's some kind of basic human equality. And the world and educate them uh, to keep this conversation going because you both are doing a good, great job of pointing out very clearly the possible effects of forgetting that principle. Yeah. This, this thing that you've mentioned, philanthropy, uh, I believe, again, and I don't have it with me, but I believe that also in the first Federalist paper, for anybody who wants to look at these wonderful phrases, I believe it is there also where um, uh, Publius writes about how. Um, uh, a proper conduct in our own uh, matters right here will be an act of philanthropy for all mankind. It's a wonderful formulation. Um, and I, I think wonderful because it's true that if we take, uh, to repeat your point, if we take care of our own business, if we uh, manage to make this experiment here a success, this ex experiment in self-government, that is the greatest gift we can give to the world. And it's not easy to make it a success. So you need to pay attention to that. That's right. Yeah, and the, the difficulty is, I mean, we know this, right? The American, our, our, our society is not perfect. Uh, nobody ever makes that claim. Nobody, no founder ever made the claim, by the way, that this, this, uh, this republic, this constitution, this government that we were setting up was perfect. Um, but but in, in, in holding up the possibility that we can, that we are free 
first of all, capable of thinking about these things really, and then free to try to implement these principles to improve uh, society and make it more in line with our principles. That in itself is a is a rare thing in history, and it continues to be a relatively rare thing even in today's supposedly, you know, modern uh, enlightened societies, you know, who've advanced historically toward toward these toward these high points. But but that that just holding out that possibility is a remarkable accomplishment. And I want to remind us of a simple thing here. I, I always, uh, if, you know, depending on the amount of time you have to talk about these things, I would want my students to read the Declaration of Independence and Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and then Martin Luther King's Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech is on a list of. And I do that because over three centuries, uh, the 18th, 19th, 20th century, you see three very different Americans, different circumstances, and in very interestingly different ways saying that everything depends on, this is getting to Martin Luther King Jr., living up to that principle. By that stage, you're talking about it in that way. Um, that his, the American dream is that Americans will live up to this principle of equality. And that is, uh, that's in the spirit of Lincoln, that's in the spirit of King, because after the revolution, um, that's the country that we are. We, we are a country that has what Lincoln calls the standard maximum of free society, and it's up to us to live up to it. And, uh, and, but the reality of that, the political reality of that is a wonderful thing. So when you look at the Tiananmen Square um, protests, or you look at the Hungarian Revolution back in 1956, and these other places around the world where these other people are holding up in their own aspirations for their own freedom and their quoting the Declaration of Independence and all that, it's very important to acknowledge the political reality of that. And, and I think only, I think when you do that, you are getting the most important glimpse of what this idea means. And it's losing that that is a great, great risk. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's really insightful. Uh, everything that you gentlemen have brought up today has been really, uh, really helpful to this conversation. In our last few minutes, I have several questions from um, from people attending today, and there are a few I want to raise if we have time here at the end, with the time we have left. That are really challenging some of the things that we've talked about today. So uh, let me start with one, um, just to summarize a little bit for the sake of time. This uh, it, it sounds like this. Understanding the quality that we started talking about earlier today in our conversation, it, it became the basis for an evolving sort of free market system in, in the United States. And this person wants to know if that's the case, why then is a neo-Marxist ideology, the, the, the neo-Marxist ideology of the 20th century, um, which attempted to expand equality, why is that any less valid if it's simply trying to expand equality somehow? Why is the neo-Marxist approach to things any less valid than the call it a free market capitalist economy established by by equality at the time of the founding. Anybody want to tackle that in four minutes? Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean that's a of course it's a great question and it's impossible uh, it is a great question. in a few moments, but th th there's a, a um, uh, modern philosophy, including American philosophy, moved away from equality and liberty and the laws of nature, let's put it that way, just moved away from it and became, uh, Marxism 
it, it, here's what it does, essentially, and I, I'm sorry I'm babbling. I, I want to I give you a bumper sticker, and I shouldn't want to do that. Marxism and neo-Marxism and whatever you want to call it, historicism and so denies human nature. It denies the ability of human beings to do what we have been arguing for an hour they can do. And once you do that, then your assumption becomes the answer. In other words, that therefore what you have left is not self-government and issues like that, and certainly not liberty in the pursuit of happiness, but what you have is just an equalization of things, so to paraphrase Churchill, to make everybody equal even in their misery. And that satisfies this inclination of this quasi-Marxist mode, this historicist mode for a kind of peace among human beings, because you're overcoming the greatest tension uh, uh, based on based on on on, on unequal, inequality of income, and that is misunderstood because they misunderstand the basis of wealth creation. Wealth creation is not a zero sum game post 1776, and I'm referring not only to the Declaration but to the the, the, the wealth of nations. Wealth creation becomes something different when you understand human beings as the Americans understand it in 1776. Human beings, the mind being free, you can't foresee what they're capable of creating, uh, including computer chips and all that sort of stuff out of stand, blah, blah, blah. And, and so everyone profits from that. The market actually extends and so instead of having a few wealthy, which you've always had in history, and the many poor, you now end up having potentially with the many wealthy, that's why we call it a middle class. It's a direct relationship there in what loosely is called political economy. The Marxists always misunderstood that. Uh, they misunderstood that because, uh, because Rousseau ended up ruling the, the roost in Europe rather than Locke. Well, speaking of Locke, let me let me step in. Uh, one a quick uh, answer to that, Chris, if I may say so, is that there's a uh, there's a different understanding between the neo-Marxists and and the revolutionaries, the American revolutionaries, and that's what's at the root of this. And that is, um, in 1776, when these guys said all men are created equal, among the things that they meant by that is that. Um, Every human being by nature has a property in himself. And you can look at John Locke and you look at his second treatise and you look at uh, section 27 of his second treatise and there he will say, I think it's there, that all human beings have a property in themselves which no one has a right to. Only you. And that and right. that part of equality is is the basis of what comes to be called free market capitalism. But that free market capitalism, there are other things like the industrial revolution and all these things that occur that, that change what I would say are these sort of secondary matters. But nonetheless, at the root of that, which the founders understood is where human beings are left free, as Madison, as Madison says in Federal Ten, with our equal property in our own persons and our unequal capacities to acquire property, where we are left free, unequal possessions of property will occur. And that's, that's the essential reason, I think, of free market capitalism. And, and where, where people are, where you find people 
living with equality of property, you will be necessarily be seeing a people that is unfree. You can do it, he says, but I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, this is, this is great. So, I, again, you know, we're, we're, we're at the end of our time, but if, this is a little bit bumper stickers. You know, we're saying Peter uh, trying to avoid bumper stickers things here. But what I'm hearing you say is, both of you say is that whereas the sort of founding understanding of equality starts with the supposition that the mind, that all men are born equal in the sense that the mind is free, and the result, the sort of natural result of that is inequality with regard to property. The neo-Marxists put that entirely around, and it's almost as though they start with the end. They're looking for the result, which is equal property or equal wealth, and they deny absolutely the freedom of the human mind. In fact, it seems to me that's why you know, that, that Marxist system lent itself, uh, well, as it was applied in the Soviet Union, it had to couple itself with a, with a, with a totalitarian regime, which supplied the opinion to their peoples, to the, to the Soviets, uh, to the Russians, I should say, right? And, but they had to supply the opinions that they believed were right because they didn't think people were capable of thinking freely yeah. for themselves, right? I think the only thing I would add to all that really quite remarkable articulation is that, is that uh, it's, it's a diversity in property that's critical here, see? The Americans make the argument for real diversity. This is, it's not just the amount of property that Burkett has compared to Schramm or something like that. It's a different kind of property. You know, Burkett buys booze and Schramm buys books and <laughs> motorcycles and cigars. But, I mean, that diversity creates a different kind of society that is to be encouraged. There's no, it's, you're not encouraging homogeneity in these things. That equal opportunity leads to diversity and therefore different kinds of interests result from that freedom. And that's a very big thing. It's a very American thing. That's diversity rightly understood. Um, yeah, and that, that, that aspect of things is often overlooked by scholars. That aspect of the founding is often overlooked. I mean, we're familiar with Charles Beard and his thesis, you know, about the founders were essentially, um, uh, you know, the founders and framers were, were looking out for the interest of the, uh, of the wealthy primarily. And, uh, and, uh, and he quotes, you know, Federal 10 and that, and, you know, the idea that that paragraph where men are different, they have different factors and talents. And, uh, but, you know, what's often overlooked in that paragraph is what James Madison actually says, when you allow the mind to be free and do its natural thing, the result is not just different degrees of property, but kinds of property. That's right. That's, That's huge. That's huge. Absolutely. Yes. And that makes life swing. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, gentlemen, we've uh, we've uh, come to the end of our time. This is uh, this has been really fascinating and enlightening. I know we've just really scratched the surface of, of, of this question of the quality. We could go on for hours, I'm sure. But um, uh, thanks, that was good. Perhaps not without without alcohol, but um, um, that's right. <laughs> I get smarter, by the way. If I have a couple of drinks, I get really smart. <laughs> I've seen you. <laughs> But again, hopefully this has been helpful to people. It's just a kind of starting point to how 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 we might start having a conversation about this question. But I'm uh, I'm grateful to both of you for your time this morning, and I have learned a great deal as well. So thanks, thanks to you and everyone else. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great Take day. Yeah. Flannery, Burkett. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to our to our uh, uh, joining us today, just a reminder: uh, you'll be asked to fill out a, a survey form. Please fill out that form and include your address so we can send you a letter documenting your participation today. 
if you've enjoyed today's webinar, think about taking a, an online course, a graduate course uh, offered through the Expert Center as part of our Master of Arts in American History program. Uh, we have these kinds of conversations in our courses, so those of you who have done that know, know what we're talking about. You can find out more about those courses again at teachingamericanhistory.org. Our next webinar will be Saturday, September 27th, same time, 11 p.m. Eastern. The next question will be, did the founders misunderstand democracy? Which would be a nice follow-up to the main conversation. Uh, that will be with Dr. Ken Masudi of the Johns Hopkins University Krieger School of Arts and Sciences and Dr. David Foster of National University. So I look forward to seeing you then. Until then, take care. Thanks.